This episode is sponsored by Makersite. Scope 3 reporting shouldn't be hard. With Makersite's software suite, you can automate and scale all 15 categories of Scope 3 for each of your products, purchase components, and suppliers. For more information, visit makersite.io. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Boris Johnson's climate legacy, honoring women in sustainability, a new model for carbon removal investments, and marketing guru Seth Godin takes on the climate crisis. It's the hottest brand in town, this week on 350. It's July 15th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, reveling in a midsummer's night dream is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hi there. I'm reveling in midsummer night's travel nightmares, oh, yeah, actually. I know. Well, <laughs> that's uh, just uh, part of, I mean, travel nightmare is kind of a redundancy these days. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, I was lucky in, in my copious travels during during uh, June to Sao Paulo and Amsterdam and New York to not get stranded at all. But uh, just it sounds like everything, you know, is is wonky right now and will be for a while. But yeah, you know. I feel really badly for the air, like for the people that work for the airlines. God bless you. Yeah, probably. Yeah. You know, and there's patience and they're still trying to decide even whether to wear masks on board the uh, the, the the crew um some do some don't it's 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 just a crazy time and yeah i i hear you let's uh let, let's give a shout out to the the service workers at the airports and the on the air on the flights and everybody involved and thank you and <laughs> hang in there yeah but you know what we got a lot to talk about this week so let's go down the runway and take off with the Week in Review. So, startups. Uh, we've got a lot of startups this week. Three stories we're gonna talk about, about uh, carbon removal and textile recycling and, and replacing petrochemicals with uh, silkworms. Uh, this is all your beat, Heather. So I'm going to toss some of this to you. Uh, uh, you picked these three stories this week. Uh, talk a little bit about Frontier, and and uh, let's start right there. Frontier, the new fund pioneering a, a model for uh, carbon removal investments. Yeah. So this one was written by our newish, our brand newish climate tech reporter, Leah Garden. Hi, Leah. <laughs> I'm going to talk about you on the podcast. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, she's what, what, really a great addition uh, to our growing yeah. team. And, and it's, uh, uh, it's a delight to have her on board. Absolutely. The energy is amazing. And so this piece is a, a follow-up story on the first investments by Frontier, which is a advanced market commitment, an AMC, for direct carbon capture. Um, so a couple of things to unpack here. One is what is an advanced market con commitment? So uh, in the case of this particular fund, which is pioneered and started really by Stripe, but it also includes Shopify, Alphabet, Meta, and McKinsey, uh, the, the trick here and the, the thing that they're doing that's a bit different than other carbon removal funding efforts is they are basically betting on really early stage uh, startups and essentially committing to uh, a future purchase. So this is um, one of the things I love talking about is sort of the the buying power and the buying demand signals that we need. And um, this is one of those those funds. And it was born out of the the efforts that Stripe has really been pioneering over the last two years. 
um, with respect to this. So it's been kind of basically doing this model on its own, but back in a little, a little bit earlier this year, it basically teamed up with uh, these other companies to get a lot more funding behind it. Like it's a close to a billion dollars in funding that's going into to these really early stage startups. And they've picked six. They, they had uh, more than 75 applicants for their first round of, of, uh, of investments and have picked six. And that's what this piece is about. Um, I'm going to shut up and let you get a word in, but um, that's the background on this one. So it's, it's an interesting model. So you fund six and hope that at least one of them delivers. Mm -hmm. Or is, mm -hmm. is there one? Um, is there one winner, or, or will there be multiple winners here? You know, I think there's going to be multiple winners, like win, place, and show, if you will. Like there, there, there definitely be, will be multiple winners. I think, um, and. You know, I mentioned before, 75 applicants were interested, 26 were invited to apply, and six were selected for purchase. So yeah, these particular companies will see some money now. Will they see ongoing money? Like after the first rounds of of, of projects are delivering, that's that's what um, is the, the the sort of trick for the future. I don't remember what the time frame is on these. I'm not sure if it, it it's not in the story, but. Some of these commitments, I know in, in the case of Stripe, they, they have basically a long a contract and it, it, they're not short term. They're, they're at least out a couple of years. I don't know the exact parameters of this, this bunch, but yeah, um, it's, yeah. It, it's an innovative approach and, and, and it is taking a page in some ways from the XPRIZE, where the XPRIZE will invite uh, uh, companies to submit things in carbon removal, carbon removal or a number of other topics that they've done over the years. And, and the winner gets like a billion dollars or something. So there's one huge winner. This one sounds like a, it's, it's a different model because they're pre-purchasing the services uh, of these uh, six firms and uh, assuming that they actually deliver on those services. And that's not always a guarantee. So I, I love this model, I think. And, and as, as uh, uh, Leah notes, uh, quotes someone uh, at the, towards the end that, this is a relatively underutilized way of incentivizing innovation. So I think this is uh, has a lot of, of potential. But, you know, let's go back now to another story, which is more traditional, I think, uh, venture capital model. And this is a story that our senior editor, Deanna Anderson, wrote about a company that's doing textile recycling company called CIRC, C-I-R-C, uh, so uh, this is, uh, what do you think of this? Uh, you, you've been much more into the uh, venture capital world these days, Heather. What's uh, relevant here? A couple of things are relevant for me. Um, one is that uh, the money is coming from some some uh, interesting players. So um, including the company behind Zara, which is Inditex, Inditex, pardon my uh, word stumbling there, one of the world's largest fashion retailers. So Breakthrough Energy and Inditex um, are two of the, the leads on this particular round. And this is actually the first circularity venture investment um, by Inditex, which is a parent of Zara and other, and other um, retailers that, and fashion brands that the folks here in the United States might know. So that's one thing. So the people behind it are pretty notable. The other thing is that you know circular economy technology has not gotten the same sort of love as transportation or batteries or certainly, or even carbon removal. Um, so this is like another um, great example of funding for something that's really fundamental um, to the world of the future of manufacturing and of, of recycling, in this case, textile recycling. $30 million um, is a nice chunk of change. I think this was their series, I don't know if the, what, series B. So, um, you know, that th those are the th two things that really kind of jumped out for me. What about for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, first of all, I was curious at Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is, yeah. you know, which is uh, spearheaded by Bill Gates, but includes investors include uh, Jeff Bezos, Mark Benioff, uh, Mike Bloomberg, Richard Branson, George Soros, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and on and on. I mean, it's a pretty star-studded group. Uh, that's really you know, focusing on renewable energy technologies uh, uh, originally, but so this just seems an interesting interesting play for them. Uh, of course, there's energy embedded in 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 everything, and certainly in the uh, fashion apparel things that we wear. That sector is also under huge huge uh, microscope right now, uh, spotlight uh, just because 
of the waste involved and the fast fashion and and all of that and 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 despite so many companies in footwear and apparel that are making commitments it's still a lot of uh dare i say window dressing here um because uh they, they really haven't slowed down the production and consumption part of this and and there's a case to be made that this needs to be radically rethought and so a cirque certainly seems uh to have that potential uh, to to you know create the kinds of facilities to do a textile recycling in a true way, not just downcycling, uh, but really mm-hmm. truly turn it back into new textiles. So, I think this is uh, is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go to the third story, which was written by a young up and coming writer named uh, Heather <laughs> Clancy. Uh, titled "Can Silkworms Take a Bite Out of Petrochemicals?" Now, this one's sort of near and dear because it it focuses on synthetic biology uh, or biotech. They're sort of first cousins and even interchangeable terms these days. Um, but uh, do tell, what do silkworms have to do with petrochemicals? Right. <laughs> well, so I think the background here to to understand first of all is that. Petrochemicals are in a lot of things, and we know this, um, but a lot of sort of the mainstream world doesn't know this. I mean, like Vaseline, it's 100% petroleum jelly, right? Um, skincare products. I, one thing I, I learned while I was researching this story was that aspirin, aspirin was discovered during experiments with coal tar. Coal tar, like what? I mean, it's just so anyway. There's there's a lot of petrochemicals in. Uh, household items um, in in various forms, mineral oil, polyethylene, you know, benzene, and and on and on. So that's just the backdrop. So this particular company is called Evolved by Nature. And what it is doing is taking uh, basically silkworm, uh, silkworms to to create the the protein. So it's deriving the protein that, that comes from the production of silk with these mulberry leaf munching, you know, insects. And it's it's developing something called activated silk, which it is proposing as a replacement for some of these ingredients. In particular, it's starting with skincare. So skincare in, in the sense of human skincare, so like lotions and so forth and soap, but also protective coatings for leather. So it's, it's um, one of its first applications is basically a coating for leather products, which t- re- removes a polyethylene that's normally associated with that, um, and, and turns it in, turns this coating into something that repels m- moisture, but eventually it can biodegrade. Um, so they got some funding, um, which is one of the sort of drivers of this particular story. 120 million in Series C, which is enabling them to really uh, scale their manufacturing facilities. One of the other thing I really like about this piece is that. They're manufacturing in the United States. They're also manufacturing, um, they're not, you know, like sending out gallons and gallons of this spray or other, or this this ingredient. They are creating tablets, which are dissolved in water and can be shipped around to where they're needed. And uh, and then the other thing that's particularly kind of intriguing to me as well is this, there's a kind of a social and, and um, community development, community aspect of this, whereas, you know, where could these, Silkworms do their thing. Um, where can you get the, uh, you know, right? So, so they're they're also hoping to promote sericulture, which is basically the practice of raising mulberry trees, which the silkworms eat to produce the silk. So they're they're they've got climate benefits um, in terms of soil erosion. The berries can be protein, and they oh by the way are you know able to use land that could be somehow somewhat degraded. So they're they're cultivating relationships with farmers in China, Italy, Africa, Colombia. Um, so I, I love, there's just all so many elements of this particular company that I really appreciate. Yeah. Um, so they're using the yeah. natural silk protein from the silkworm, uh, becomes a bioactive molecule that they can then turn into products like the, uh, you know, the protective barriers to skin, uh, in their, in this new product that you write about. Um, uh, yeah, really, really interesting stuff. And, and as I said, it's near and dear to me, I, I, I've been, working with a company called Genomatica, which uh, is doing is on a similar path. In fact, they just announced a, a partnership with Unilever. We ran a story on this, uh, another $120 million thing. And it seems to be the magic number this week um, to to create and scale an alternative to palm oil. 
uh, which you think is you know potentially huge, uh, creating palm oil not from palms that palm trees that have been deforested um, or have been planted in areas that were deforested, big cause of, of cutting down the Amazon and other uh, other tropical forests. Um, also working to create a bio nylon. Uh, they have created a bio nylon. It's being used, I think, by Lululemon and some other brands. So this is a really uh, just this whole field of how do we use biotechnology to create alternatives to fossil fuels, um, and uh, and in, in some cases with additional benefits like you know reducing deforestation. Uh, this this is a big area that I think we're going to be seeing a lot more innovation in. Synthetic biology, it's often called, we wrote about this several years ago in our State of Green Business report that this was an up and coming thing. And sure enough, it is. Well, there's no shortage of news coming from across the pond, certainly in the UK with the uh, imminent departure of Boris Johnson. And it was a good time to check in with our friend, James Murray, Editor-in-Chief of Business Green. Hey, James. Hi, Joe. There's so many angles to this story, but obviously the one we want to talk about is climate. Um, What is uh, Boris Johnson's legacy on climate and and what kind of bar did he set for uh, for UK and for his predecessor, uh, low, medium or high? Um, I mean, it's always hard to gauge with climate stuff, isn't it? Because even if it's high relative to other countries and high relative to to his predecessors, it's always never enough compared to what you need to do in terms of decarbonisation. So you could argue it's low or, or you could argue it's high. I think you know, if you're if you're taking the perspective of compared to previous prime ministers and compared to other countries, he was pretty good on this stuff. And and it kind of slightly pains environmentalists and green business types to say this, because when on a lot of other measures, he was, you know, slightly populist in his stances, you know, relatively, you know, very well, relatively right wing in his approaches to regulation and, and economics and the like. But on net zero and climate, he was a really quite a strong voice and he pushed back against members of his party that wanted to be a lot weaker on this stuff. So uh, it is a slightly uh, complicated and um, and, and vexed moment uh, for the environmental movement in the UK to see him go. So is there uh, his departure? Is it bad news, good news? Are you optimistic that uh, the the next person may at least continue that uh, and if not uh, go further faster? Um, it's very difficult to tell at the moment. I mean, it's, it's absolute chaos, Joel, to be honest. I mean, the way that he's been sort of defenestrated so quickly after winning a substantial majority entirely through his own mistakes and his own ridiculous acts in terms of, you know, partying during COVID and and, and some of the other sort of scandals, sort of scandal upon scandal that, that's been hitting his administration. So it's entirely his own fault. Uh, but that has created a very sort of febrile and volatile atmosphere and it's very hard to tell where this stuff goes so you know it, it's at the moment he's not actually resigned um he is planning to resign after a leadership election we'll have to see how that plays out we don't know who the actual candidates will be at this point in the leadership election but looking at those most likely to throw their hats into the ring there aren't many that are associated with being bold and progressive on net zero and climate and there are several who have let it be known that they were never big supporters of this part of Boris Johnson's agenda and would like to be a bit more, I mean, what they position as pragmatic, but in fact, what they mean is more fossil fuels, you know, going a bit slower on the transition to clean technologies and all this sort of stuff. And there's also a few, um, not as many as you find in in the Republican Party in the US, but there's still a few quite influential sort of full-blown climate sceptics in the party as well, um, at least one of whom is, is considering running. So, it's really hard to tell how it's going to pan out. You've kind of got one half of the Conservative Party talking, saying, look what happened to uh, the centre-right party in Australia uh, recently, which lost an election in large part because it wasn't particularly progressive uh, uh, on, on environmental issues and where the public are more and more demanding bold action. So they're saying, look, we've got to stick with this. We've got to go faster and, and further on it. Uh, you've got the other side who are going back to basics um, on sort of, you know, right-leaning thinking of, of treating this stuff as a sideshow at best and something that's actively damaging on the other side. And of course, you throw into the mix the fact that they're going to form the next, you know, whoever wins this 
leadership election will be the next prime minister. Um, but they don't they won't have a mandate to change too much unless they go for an election, at which point could the opposition finally come into power after 13 years and get a full change in our approach to these things. So it's a very volatile environment. Um, it's hard to know exactly how it's going to pan out. Um, and and yeah, there are people in the green economy over here who are quite nervous that you're going to see you're either going to see delays to things that are needed um, or worst case scenario, you could see a sort of rowing back on on some of the measures uh, that, that Johnson did pursue. Well, uncertainty, I get it on the environmental side, but what about on the business side? Uh, does this uncertainty uh, affect anything in terms of uh, what how companies are moving you know, along their own journeys on decarbonization, net zero and all that? I mean, again, there's, there's two ways of looking at it. I mean, broadly, no, because you know, this is a big global trend. These technologies are more competitive than ever. All the things we talk about all the time, you know, there's there's a strong case for continuing with this transition, almost regardless of what politicians are doing, you know, as the US recently proved with, with a lot of corporates continuing to decarbonize, even as Donald Trump was dismissing it as nonsense. So in some ways, no. In other ways, in, when you get down to the technical detail of certain investment decisions and the way certain markets are evolving, yeah, it could be problematic. I mean, just as a prime example, the day that all the ministers uh, started resigning and sort of preempted, sort of precipitated uh, Johnson's resignation, the government unveiled a new energy security bill that was, you know, the biggest piece of reforms to energy markets um, in a decade. That included measures to uh, introduce a new policy framework for hydrogen, uh, for carbon capture and storage, uh, included some measures to sort of streamline grid connections for offshore wind farms. Um, it included plans to sort of accelerate the rollout of smart grid technologies uh, and myriad other measures, all of which at the technical level are needed to help decarbonize the grid and drive the adoption of electric vehicles, heat pumps, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that bill now is kind of stuck. It's going to sit there um, until a new leader comes in and then a new leader will look at it and might want to change things. Um, so legislation that, that the industry was kind of hoping would be in place by the end of this year is now definitely going to be delayed a bit and might be torpedoed altogether so there are ways in which unfortunately this sort of eats up time and bandwidth and and will undermine investments boy we sure know about that here uh, we're seeing a, a, a similar story play out although it's we've never had a, a proactive policy as you well know uh, but whatever policies have been attempted are just kind of sitting there so so uh, I mean, you've been covering this for a long time, uh, covering sustainability and, and a keen watcher of, of UK politics. How are you feeling right now? It's It feels a little bit like Groundhog Day, like the Conservatives have been in power for now nearly 13 years or, you know, there's coalition government, but broadly in power for 13 years. And these same arguments keep playing out of one side of the party saying, this stuff shouldn't be a priority or, or it's absolute nonsense and a distraction. And the other side saying, no, this should define, you know, modern centre-right politics. It's the most important economic transition we're ever going to see, et cetera, et cetera. And every time we get a bit of momentum um, around that side of the argument and make some progress, as we have made, you know, the UK has the biggest offshore wind market in the world. Um, it's doing some really good stuff on electric vehicles and other areas. We are making progress. Um, every time we get that momentum, something comes up. In this case, it's Boris Johnson's ridiculous personal behaviour um, that that undermines that progress and sets us back and starts the debate all over again. So um, it, it feels frustrating. It feels um, that we're going to have to have the same arguments again as to make the economic case for things that should be self-evident, uh, try and convince uh, people that the pro-business position is not instinctively, you know, anti-regulation, anti-policy um, you know, anti-modern technology, uh, and 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 continue to to have those arguments again. So there's there's a degree of frustration there. I mean, the other way of looking at it is that you know Boris Johnson had lost all authority. He wasn't going to be able to pursue this agenda and push it forward anymore. And there was little choice but to make a change. And maybe that change will shake things up. Maybe it will get us um, you know a new government that's more ambitious on this stuff. Um, whether that's the opposition or a new Tory leader coming in and, and recognizing the importance of it. So. Um, yeah, it's still early days. It's very chaotic. It's very frustrating, but reasons to be optimistic that the the broad thrust of the transition will continue. Well, as everything in sustainability, it's what I call the green biz cha-cha, two steps forward, one step back. Um, so uh, we'll keep 
putting one foot in front of the other on both sides of the pond and, and hope for the best. Uh, James Murray is the ed- editor-in-chief of Business Green over in London. James, thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Joe. This spring, the WSLA Alumni Group recognized 11 women at the forefront of the sustainability profession. These leaders have made a difference by advancing new technologies or strategies, by overcoming personal and professional obstacles, and by committing to mentoring other women. They join more than 85 women who have been honored since 2014. I am thrilled to introduce some of the latest inductees here on GreenBiz 350. This week, I'm joined by Heidi Marie Bonilla de Cienfuegos, co-founder and director of B100 Arquitectos, or B100 Architects, and her firm is in El Salvador. It's one of the first in Central America to embrace bioclimactic and sustainable design. She was also behind a program that has helped train women of all ages for careers in sustainable construction. Heidi, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Thank you, Heather, for having me here. It's an honor to be here and talk to you a little bit about us and what we do. I found your story to be particularly touching when I watched a ceremony, and I wondered what inspired you to focus on a career related to environmental sustainability and ESG. What got you into this space? Well, actually, I didn't think about uh, ESGs in that in that moment when I was uh, looking for my career. Um, it was time to decide, have that difficult, difficult decision of what to study. And I wanted something that had an impact, um, art related with mathematics, but also that could have a, a great impact in nature. I love nature. My grandparents are the influence of that. And my German side, um, they, they love nature. We did a lot of hiking and they had that uh, vision of um, respect for nature and loving nature and we are part of nature. So I wanted something that embraced that. So I thought, well, the only thing that could combine math and art was actually architecture and I can find a way to do it respectfully with nature so I decided to go against everything (laughs) because my family wanted me to be an engineer my dad especially but I was decided and I got the courage and I got into architecture and find my way from there and I started working in architecture and everyone was doing everything like business as usual but I wanted to incorporate all these sustainable uh, things I was reading because I love to read. And um, well, I thought when they are not hearing me, I have to path my way and do my own thing. So I found my partner and which is really great to have my husband and partner in crime and everything. So we founded our company and said, okay, if we don't find somewhere to work in what we love, then we are getting going to create it and have it an opportunity to change. So that's how I got into this. That's quite a story. Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely inspiring. And definitely, uh, that's always challenging trying to get around your family expectations. And I'm glad you got to the place where you are. What do you think and believe has been the most important factor in your success? I think perseverance and hearing your inner voice but because normally you're like quiet and don't think you're just thinking things and they're not important but actually hear your voice and your gut feeling and continue and that I think that was the the big thing um try it's not always um doing what is expected of you or what you're normal to do and the path that's laid down for you you have to find your voice and normally we are not encouraged to do that we're encouraged to follow a path and have a job and uh, have a career and go on and have a family and so on but uh that that thing i think it's the best um or the path I, I, I elected to have really, really the thing I love and the passion, follow the passion. I think that's the, the big thing. Normally you need courage and then you need a, a good support system. And I think um, 
I have it. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it. Um, what do you think has been the most successful habit in terms of leadership that you've embraced? So a strategy or a leadership habit that you feel has been very successful for your, for you and your team. I think the first um, and most is um, don't don't think you know everything. <laughs> you have to keep learning. Um, have to keep looking at what it's been doing around you. Analyze it and take the best of everything you see. And so, I my habit is read. I love to read and study, and I, that's why I have a lot of accreditations and in sustainability because. I learned so much from that process and each project is different. So I think um, in some is don't, don't think you know everything. You have to keep learning. And each, each project is so, so much different. And you are not the same that you were yesterday. So embrace the involvement you are having with all this information. How has mentoring change your own career tra trajectory or outlook. So I know you've done, you've been involved. I mentioned the program that you started. So how has mentoring others and mentoring others to be leaders changed your own tra career tra trajectory? I think um, it always gives you another perspective um, and makes you realize the path you already have walked uh, and looking back, because when you're doing a lot of things, you don't have time to stop and think what you have, have achieved. And when you're talking with a lot of, of these girls uh, and women that want to do better and have another opportunity, it really enriches everything. I think gives you another perspective and gives you hope that change is coming. You're not alone doing this. <laughs> you're not the crazy one thinking um, it's important to do sustainable work, but um, it gives you... Uh, energy also i feed off a lot of this with these programs and and giving the information i already and experience i already have uh, so that not they don't have to go through that again because it's difficult to be a woman in construction and in sustainable construction even more because you are talking something totally different yeah, so uh, people are thinking, okay, she's crazy and she's a woman and she wants me to believe what she's saying. But the challenges that you already uh, overcome, they don't have to be the challenges for anyone else. So it's very um, enlightening and, and enriching to, to see those women because a lot of them are single moms and wanting to provide for the families and normally have to be with the pandemic they had to give up their careers and take care of the families because m most of them got sick and everything. But with, with the program, we have been able to give them first hope that they can do something different, they, that they can do something in, in, a, in an area that normally you don't have uh, the opportunity and that you're giving them tools to, to provide for the families. So for me, it's very... Um, very enriching and I love it to, to be part of these mentoring things and, and programs to create them because we wanted to find programs here but they were not actually for women. And so we created it then and that had been the past for the, for the 14 years that we have been working here. If we don't find that, we create it so it's not missing from the market. Great strategy. <laughs> what final advice would you give to anyone of any age pursuing a career in corporate sustainability? Well, I think one of the things I always talk is, and, and it's very important for me, is you have to, to embrace your uniqueness. You don't have to copy the path of anyone else. You are um, creative. You are very much capable. And so don't copy anyone you can have and create your own path. And uh, don't see difficulties as obstacles, they're opportunities. And every, every single action really counts, even the smallest one. You don't know what effect you're creating actually uh, when the things you say and do. So everything counts. Um, and don't forget that it really matters what you do. Well, thank you, Heidi, for joining us on the podcast today. 
Oh, thank you for having me. It's always great to, to share with people that are in the same symphony as us and trying to make a better world for everyone. You just heard from Heidi Marie Banilla de Cienfuegos, co-founder and director of Becien Arquitectos. This week marked the publication of a new book on the climate crisis. And while that's not exactly news, there seems to be a library full of books coming out recently on this topic. The authorship of this one is noteworthy. Seth Godin is an entrepreneur and best-selling author, best known for his books on marketing, advertising, business venturing, and leadership. His latest book, The Carbon Almanac, is described as a once-in-a-lifetime collaboration among hundreds of writers, researchers, thinkers, and illustrators. That focuses on what we know, what's come before, and what might happen next. Seth Godin joins me now. Hey, Seth. Hey, how are you? Thanks for talking. Um, so why a book on climate and carbon? What was missing from the 9,472 other books on this topic? Well, certainly no one listening to this needs to hear what I can teach them about the science of climate change. But what has been missing for a really long time is a conversation among the people who care with the rest of the population about how we're going to cause systemic change. And the idea of this almanac, I have a long history as a book packager. I've made a lot of almanacs, some of the most successful almanacs ever, was how do we put this into a format that lets people who get it have a book they can hand to people who might? Not to persuade the non-believers, because that's almost impossible, but to activate it, to move it through the population because our subtitle is It's Not Too Late, and it's not, but we better start right this minute. What got you interested in this? This hasn't been, to my knowledge, something that you've talked about a lot in the past. Well, I wrote my first blog post on climate change 16 years ago, and apparently that wasn't sufficient to solve the problem. Uh, you know, my, my blog is one of the most popular in the world. I write every day for a large number of people around the world, and tend to lean into things where I'm finding it's resonating with folks in the time cycle that I'm talking to them. And what I succumbed to was that climate change felt like an insider's game where if you weren't a PhD, you weren't really welcome to chime in, where the labeling and marketing of it was horrific, terrible, poor, but I didn't have any traction or leverage to do something about that. And, um, Finally, I decided that this was the existential crisis of the rest of my life and wanted to organize people to take action. So the magic of this almanac is I didn't write it. Uh, I organized a group that's now 1900 strong. 300 of us worked around the clock because of time zones to create a 97,000 word document in less than four months. It's illustrated with cartoons and graphs and charts and tables. But again, I wrote it so the people who are listening to this can buy five copies and hand them to the people they work with or for or trying to engage with. Yeah. I mean, the, the book is, is extraordinarily comprehensive and it takes on tons of topics from hamburgers to heat zones and permafrost uh, planetary boundaries. Uh, it's almost as overwhelming as, well, climate change itself. So how do you want people to use this book? So there's an expression on the internet called TLDR, too long didn't read. And the magic of the almanac is no one ever reads the almanac. Almanacs are designed to be browsed. They were the original internet. They were the original thing. I'm just going to surf the almanac for 15, 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever. That's what we built the book to do. So you can open to any spread, spend two minutes, you will come away with something. But the other part of it is that every single statement in the book is footnoted on our website. And so what we're trying to do is give away as many of the links and insights as we can, because our goal is not to chop down trees and sell books. Our goal is to have the conversation get amplified. So you're a marketing guru. And uh, what's been missing from the way that we market climate change, if you will? Um, and how do you get people engaged? And, and I mean, truly engaged uh, from in what is, as you said, essentially an existential problem. 
Yeah, so I can talk about this for a while because I'm really interested in how culture change happens. We'll start with this. Global warming is a terrible name. Global is good. Warming is good. Global warming must be good. Follow that up with endless reports, usually in centigrade, that are hard to discern, plus statistics. People don't even understand statistics about something as simple as an election. They certainly don't understand statistics about the future. Add to that the fact that people, particularly in this country, don't like to talk about death, and climate change is mostly about that. Um, And continue this process of uh, the mindset of eat your vegetables and just do less, which was started or amplified by British Petroleum and Ogilvy and Mather with carbon footprint, which they made up. And what you end up with is something becoming political that isn't political. Uh, Political means an excuse not to talk about it. And something that became scientific that doesn't need to be scientific. It's actually about a massive shift in our culture that represents opportunities and possibilities at the same time that it holds out dread and disaster. When you put all of those things together, plus no one is in charge, and the loudest, most well-funded people tend to be in committees, and you end up with just a mess. And if I had a client, I would try very hard to help them understand that you market ideas not like that, but the way the great brands and educators have done it through history. And uh, I think the climate needs a good ad agency. You've got a lot of tips, uh, eat less, uh, eat more produce or local produce, use refillable water bottles, turn off the lights, put on a sweater. I mean, some of these have been around since Jimmy Carter, or in the case of turning off the lights, my dad in the 50s. Why is it so hard to get people to change? I mean, why are we still talking about some of these kinds of things you need to do? Why aren't they just sort of like seatbelts, just sort of the way we now roll? Well, to be clear, this book was written by a group of people, each with a different way of coming at it. The only reason those tips are there, as far as I'm concerned, is after you've taken some steps, maybe you will feel more secure in talking about systemic change because we cannot possibly recycle ourselves out of this problem. We cannot possibly reduce ourselves in the rich world out of this problem. It's not going to happen. Systemic change is the only option. And throughout the book and with all the other materials we're creating, we keep coming back to that. That the fact is that a a carbon dividend plus a tax to pay for it would change the game in 15 minutes because what we've been doing is using basically free energy like drunken sailors for over a hundred years. And if we priced it fairly, people would make different decisions. If we think about cigarettes, cigarettes finally shifted in the United States because of one reason, taxes. When we started to tax cigarettes differently, people changed their behavior. You've talked about system change a bunch, and uh, that's one of these phrases that just keeps coming up uh, in in general around climate. And I don't think anybody really knows what it means, let alone how to do it. And and I'm wondering, what do you see the system change here that needs to happen? Or or, or how do you think about system change around climate change in this moment? So let's think about a bunch of systems from small to big. Here's a system, weddings. If you're going to get married, it's a moment of status and affiliation. And of course, you're going to serve steak and salmon for the people who don't eat meat. That's a system's choice in our culture. We could change that system and make it so that it's sort of shameful to buy 5,000 pounds of beef for your wedding. It's not necessary. And if that becomes the standard, then people are going to look at the social standing of beef a little bit differently over time, bit by bit. Add to that billions of dollars spent by U.S. taxpayers to subsidize beef and half of all the land in the United States used for grazing beef. These are systems, systems in which a small number of people profit and a whole bunch of people are part of the system. And we don't have to change very much for the system to go in the other direction, to go back to eating as much beef as we ate just 30 years ago. And when we start making those sorts of shifts, really big things happen as side effects that It used to be crazy to think about lots and lots of business people jumping on jets to fly somewhere for a one-day meeting. Now it's normal because we built systems around that. 
So no, one person like me not getting on airplanes anymore isn't going to change anything. But if we can open the door to change our cultural and financial systems, then the ratchet starts going the other direction. So just to finish my rant, the single most effective system ever built in the history of the world is capitalism. Capitalism paved the earth. Capitalism made more people rich than anything ever before in history. But capitalism pays attention to markets. And if capitalism starts paying attention to this, it will come up with lots of solutions that individuals never could. Well, one of the systems that needs changing, and I didn't see much about it in the book, uh, it may have been uh, tangentially mentioned, is, is political lobbying and, and, and uh, con- political contributions. Because as we see, so much of, of, of what we are for and support uh, politically and financially are, are whoever has the most money to, uh, to lobby for. Uh, that feels like a, a big system change that really under undergirds pretty much everything else. Why didn't you? I see more of that in the book. Yeah, this is a great point, and um, I feel like the second order cleanup that we could do to help our post-industrial world become more focused on equity and opportunity is enormous. And part of it is lobbying. Part of it is racial and social injustice. Part of it is who we are listening to, who gets a seat at the table. Part of it is the whole education industrial complex. And I wrote a whole manifesto about education a few years ago that 4 million people have read. The question is, where are you going to put the boundaries in a 200-page book? And I don't know how to do a better job than the people who have come before about let's get certain kinds of money out of certain kinds of electoral politics. Instead, I feel like there is this sleeping giant. It's only 10 million people, 5 million people in the United States. If they woke up and started to speak differently, it would change. And we've seen it change. It's changed with things like gay marriage, that there you don't need very many people in a world that is so aware of division to start speaking up, to make a dramatic change. And I guess the essence of my approach is we all have way more power than we think. And what we need to do is organize around that power, not necessarily say the whole system has to change before I'm going to care. Well, let's talk about the business system, uh, the the largest corporations and and their suppliers, a lot of smaller companies as well. What's the change uh, at the, the top of the list that you want to see from them? So again, I have made it clear from the beginning, I'm not the expert on any of this. I'm just noticing things and pointing to them. What we know is that um, when the Chicago School of Capitalism came along and said the only job of the CEO is to make as much money as possible, Milton Friedman's nonsense, it was instantly embraced by boards and CEOs, because it gave them a simple flag, a simple way to go forward. And I think the opportunity that corporations have is for us as consumers, for us as people who are playing the game with them to say, we're not going to keep track of that as much as we're going to keep track of this. And so it's not make as much money as you can while satisfying this little thing. It's the entire reason you are here is to make things better. The purpose of Culture is not to enable capitalism. The purpose of capitalism is to make our culture better. And if we can educate board members, and you know, you had something on your site about this just the other uh, last month or so, if we can educate board members, if we can make it clear that your status doesn't go up because you're richer, but your status goes up because of the way you showed up, then that's what they will do. Because what human beings who are successful want is not more cash, they want more status. And for a long time, we've measured that in only one way, but I think there are better ways to measure it. What was your biggest aha in uh, putting this book together? Um, I think that the, the raw numbers of plastic recycling and how overt the fraud of plastic recycling is, is the thing that just hit me the, on the side of the head the hardest. Um, it's so much easier to buy stuff that's made out of plastic if you think you can put it in a blue bin. Um, and then the other, the other thing is uh, the, the book Ministry for the Future is just stunning. And if we all just read that book, so much of what we have to do to persuade people 
would be much easier. Uh, Kim wrote a brilliant piece of near fiction, near future science fiction. And even if you're not a science fiction fan, the audiobook is just gripping. Yeah. Kim Stanley Robinson is the author of uh, The Ministry of the Future. It's, it is a great, great book. So, Seth, did you come away from this book feeling more or less optimistic about our ability to take on the climate crisis? I came away um, even more Buddhist about the whole thing because we're all going to die. Given that we're all going to die one way or the other, and that the planet's going to be here in a million years one way or the other, what are we going to do about that? And so for me, it's been about here's what we got. What should we do? Not will we be able to get back to normal? Because we're never going to get back to normal. You can't step in the same river twice. These are the good old days. What do we want to build for tomorrow? And it doesn't even matter whether you have kids or grandkids, just the optimism of the journey of knowing that you looked at this, saw a possibility, saw an opportunity and made things better for someone else. I think that's what most people want. And I'm hoping that along with the other 9,000 books, we're shining enough of a light that we can have the conversation. And that's what the Almanac is for. Let's start really having the conversation to make systemic changes. So I'll take that as more optimistic. It's deciding to be optimistic about everything, no matter what. Well, that's a great place to be in climate and in life in general. Seth Godin is author of The Carbon Almanac, published this week by Penguin Books. You can learn more at thecarbonalmanac.org. Thanks so much, Seth. Thank you. Keep leading. It really matters. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenviz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. And while you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenviz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. Our address, 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather will be off next week, but Dylan Siegler and I will be here with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Makersite. Get your company to net zero with digital twin technology. With Makersight, you can calculate and track scope 1, 2, and all 15 categories of scope 3 fully automated. For more information, visit makersight.io.